President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to He will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today, three titans of the industry. John Malone. Liberty Media, Liberty Global, and Liberty Interactive Chairman, Julian Brodsky, retired Comcast Corporation co-founder and vice chairman, and Ted Turner, chairman of Turner Enterprises and founder of WTBS and CNN, discuss their careers and key business milestones as part of the Cable Center's Cable Mavericks Lecture Series. First up, John Malone, one of the industry's most brilliant financial strategists and technology experts. Malone led TCI the industry's then-largest cable operator, until it was sold to AT&T in 1999. At both TCI and his Liberty companies, he helped start and grow scores of media companies through investment and strategic partnerships. Speaking at the University of Denver's Daniels College of Business in May 2012, Malone discusses horizontal and vertical integration, the dynamics and dangers of mergers and acquisitions, the critical process of due diligence, prudent leverage strategies, and the efficiencies of the tracking stock model. And now, the titans of cable. Well, I think the best example of, of vertical integration is, for instance, I get a phone call from Rupert Murdoch. He says, uh, CNN exists. I've got a company called News Corporation. I would love to have a cable television news channel in the United States. What do you think, right? And I say to him, well, there's probably room for another one, but you got to come down in terms of your political posture a little bit to the right of center, right? Because CNN has gone a little bit to the left of center, in the opinion of of certainly people on the right of center. Uh, So he says, uh, I think that's great. Will you help me? right? I.e., will you invest with me? And so we say, yeah, well, what do you want us to do? He said, well, why don't you, A, agree to distribute our channel? B, I want you to go see if you can recruit Rush Limbaugh to be on my channel, because I knew him. C, uh, you know, how about 20% of this thing, if it works, right? So we launched Fox News Channel, we own 20% of it. We distribute it. He programs it. We take relatively little risk because we don't put any money up. Okay. What we agreed to do was carry the channel, right, pay a fee per customer, uh, an affiliate fee, and uh, you know depend on him to do a good job of promoting it and, and creating it. We end up owning 20% of what turns out to be a valuable asset. That's the most, that, that's the most n- no-brainer of the things you can do. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, you get a phone call from Ted Turner, you know, an old friend. He said, you got to do something. You got to do something. What do I got to do, Ted? Well, you got to raise me a bunch of money or it's going to be the KNN. I said, well, what's the KNN? He says, the Kirkorian News Network, <laughs> right? Because he had bought MGM from Kirk Krikorian. You know, he had way over leveraged to buy it. And now he was running out of money. Uh, and his deal with Krikorian was if he couldn't pay him interest in cash, he had to pay him interest in stock. And his stock was spiraling down and he was issuing it. The more he issued, the lower the stock price, the more he had to issue. So it was pretty clear in about four or five quarters, Kirk would own... Uh, Turner Broadcasting, CNN. So we had to go out and raise Ted a bunch of money. Okay, 
by making an investment. And this was one we took to the cable industry uh, as opposed to doing it ourselves only. And we had to raise what was quite a bit of money then, and this would have been 1986 or 87. Uh, in order to buy his freedom from Kerkorian, we had to raise about 700 million bucks, which was a lot of equity in those days. Uh, we put together a consortium. You know, now the risk in that deal, we were all going to own equity in what was then a public company. Uh, my company was going to be the largest shareholder. We were putting up, I think, half the money, 350. And uh, so the risk was, is Ted a nut? You know, what other trouble is he going to get us into? Uh, you know, can we negotiate an agreement with Ted that will limit his flexibility, let's call it that, to get us into trouble? You know, is he going to start another Goodwill Games and compete with the Olympics? Uh, you know, what's Ted going to do? And uh, so that was the risk, I think, in that deal. It was, it was really uh, investing with a very headstrong entrepreneur that uh, who had been able to get himself into trouble by, by acquisition, you know, rash type behavior. Um, in the end, it turned out Ted is a much better businessman than we had thought, but also we had a covenant in our, in our relationship that he couldn't spend more than $2 million without my approval. So it kind of helped. <laughs> Uh, and we felt comfortable, and it worked. I mean, we all made a lot of money on that investment. Ultimately, his company was merged into Time Warner, and we all became very large shareholders of, of Time Warner, which was great until they merged with AOL and lost it all. <laughs> so, you know, you got, you, you know, these are things that, uh, you know, you sit there and you say, well, then why did we let that happen? If we were such a large shareholder and Ted was such a large shareholder in Time Warner, why did he allow the AOL merger to take place? Good question. Uh, and the reason is uh, the government took our votes away. So we couldn't vote. We were the largest shareholder. But because we had antitrust issues, competition issues between TCI, Liberty, and Time Warner. Uh, the government said you can own the shares, but you got to put them in trust. You can't vote them. Okay. So we didn't have any votes. And Ted got swept away with the concept of having this huge combination of AOL and Time Warner. So the first time he heard about it, he signed an agreement that uh, he would support it. So there went his votes, and that was it. So no diligence. I mean, the most important thing in these deals is plenty of time for diligence, uh, plenty of, of people involved in the process. And uh, so that emotion and enthusiasm don't take the place of thinking it through, building the models, getting down to the nitty gritties of exactly why is this going to work? What are we doing this for? What's going to get suddenly better in these two companies if we put them together? And what's not going to work? Um, I mean, that, that was the classic example of one that really didn't work because there was no diligence done. The guy who was at the time the chairman CEO of Time Warner got carried away with pomposity pardon the expression, that he was going to have the biggest thing that anybody had ever had, you know, $300 billion market cap company at that time. And uh, he couldn't see past that. And that's, that's what happened. So these, you know, size is no guarantee against colossal mistakes. In fact, it almost guarantees it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Kind of in that same vein, you know, with hindsight being 2020, do you, what do you think you would have found during the due diligence process that would have keyed you 
to feel like it was maybe a mistake to merge those two companies, or did you have a feeling, regardless of the fact you couldn't vote, that there might be there might be hidden down the road? No, I I had strong feelings that that you were you were trying to combine something that was real with something that was ephemeral, right? I mean, maybe Facebook works, maybe it doesn't. But a company that's trading at, at you know, virtually an infinite multiple of earnings, okay, is all on the come, uh, is not one that I would want to merge my $100 billion, you know, meat and potatoes company with. And I think that was it. It, it. It's not, I know Steve Steve Case very, very well, who was the founder of AOL. In fact, we had had a chance to buy 25% of AOL several years earlier for uh, about 130 million. So, you know, we knew the history, we knew the players. Um, when you got into AOL, if you had done diligence, you would have found that a lot of the revenue that was reported as if it was recurring, you know, the concept, uh, was in fact one time. What they were doing, if you, for those of you, you're too young to remember that the beginnings of the bubble, most of you are, Ron isn't. Uh, but what they were doing is if you wanted to uh, think about the front screen, think as if it was the front screen on an iPad, okay? And there was only one front screen for the whole country in this burgeoning internet world, right? And if you wanted to put your name or your advertisement or a link to your website on that one screen, you had to buy it from AOL, right? And so what they were doing is they were, they were going in and saying, well, give us 10% of your company and we'll link to you, right? Now, these were startup companies. Many of them were themselves weren't really businesses. They were ideas. They were out raising money from the venture capital world. So they were taking what money they could raise from the venture capital world and turning around and paying it to AOL to get on the screen, right? And in some cases, they were giving AOL stock in their company as opposed to cash, right? So AOL was treating this as if it was recurring revenue, right? The reality was this was one-time stuff. And so they were way overstating their revenues. In fact, a lot of them got in serious trouble with the SEC after the bubble blew up over the way they were accounting. But fundamentally, what you were trying to marry is a company that was trading at, let's say nine times cash flow with a company that was trading at an infinite times cash flow. And people were treating traffic to the website as if it was money. And it wasn't. That correlation, that valuation that people were coming up with. And this was a very common mistake that was made in those times. People were, in the internet world, they were thinking that traffic sooner or later would get monetized, okay? Uh, and therefore, they were putting economic values and competing for traffic and buying traffic, paying big prices for traffic. There was a company called Blue Mountain, okay? Traded for like one and a half billion dollars, zero revenue. It was in the online greeting card business. And you could go to Blue Mountain and you could download a greeting card and you could send it off to your, your friends. It was free, had lots of traffic, okay? Never, never made the transition to, to economic viability. So the internet world was full of those bubble phenomena and vaporware companies, we call them. Um, they came and they went. Now, if here was the dilemma that we had, because we had a bunch of them. I mean, we had started a whole bunch of little startup companies, and during the bubble period, they were getting market valuations that were completely absurd. You know, you would find uh, a company with three employees that just had an idea, was just created, 
and it would be trading at a billion and a half dollars of equity value. And everybody would say, well, why don't you use the equity, right? Well, you can imagine going out and selling this vaporware to some widow and, you know, you end up in jail, right? I mean, there's no way you can make representations that this is real. So the problem is a lot of times when the, when the market gets crazy like that, gets overheated, uh, there's really nothing you can do is sit there and watch it. If you get out there and say, my company isn't worth that, you know, your shareholders will kill you. If you get out there and try and issue that stock to somebody, whoever buys it is going to end up killing you. So, you know, it's a, it's a, that's a tough world. And, and we, go, we get into those crazy situations every once in a while. And, uh, you know, if you're a professional trader, you can probably make money shorting the stock if you can borrow it. The other phenomenon of these kind of companies is usually there's no stock to borrow. And the reason why the price is so high is because they're so thin, thinly traded, that there's no, there's no borrow in the stock. And so the, the normal market forces that would tend to bring reality just don't exist. Now, I, I'll give you an example. I had a, uh, an intern that worked for me, oh, probably six or seven years ago that was one of the co-founders of Facebook. And uh, he came to see me about two years ago. And he wanted to know what he should do because he owned a bunch of stock. Right? He was still an employee. But here was the dilemma. Zuckerberg told him, if you sell the stock, you can't be an employee. Right? So he was trying to figure out, should he sell the stock into the, the secondary market that was the non-public market? And I'm not sure what he did. But, you know, we'll see. I'm sure in the next week or two, we'll find out whether he made a mistake or not. <laughs> next, Julian Brodsky. Brodsky co-founded Comcast Corporation with Ralph Roberts and Dan Aaron in 1963. He served as the company's chief financial officer, then vice chairman, and the first head of its venture capital fund during the advent and rise of the Internet. Now retired... Brodsky addressed the students at the Columbia School of Business in October 2012, sharing his perspective on Comcast's business philosophy and astute financial strategy that resulted in the dramatic transformation from a small cable operating business to a global media and entertainment company. So from just a managing of a balance sheet perspective, how does uh, an individual entrepreneur or family-owned business, uh, very locally focused, manage to grow and continue to control a company over generations that ultimately ends up being $150 billion. Well, it's, you know, it's a fabulous story. I mean, we don't have time enough to do it all, but I'll try to hit some of the high spots of it. We started, there were three of us who founded the company, uh, Dan Aaron, Ralph Roberts, and myself. It was all Ralph's money, all $100,000 of it. That's, that, was, that was the capital. Uh, we started in about 700 square feet, Ballacaven, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, we had used furniture. And part of the legend is, uh, you know, I was I was a partner in a CPA firm, and, and, and Ralph was one of my mm -hmm. clients. And uh, I had been to my first cable system in 1959 as a tax accountant. This was 1963 when we started uh, the Comcast. I asked my wife, where is our card table? She says, why? She says, well, we don't have any furniture. So I show up at work with a card table and a bridge chair under, under my arm. Uh, we bought all our furniture from the used property department of the city service oil company, which was in our building, paying $10 for a desk and $5 for a chair. And we all packed in together, seven of us, and we got started. Uh, we were deal junkies and growth junkies. Everything was growth. You got to keep moving forward and keep making acquisitions. Uh, so that was our mantra. And uh, we, uh, we were lucky in that we were one of the first operators to get reasonably priced long-term debt. The industry started, believe it or not, being financed by finance companies with three-year loans at five and 600 basis points over prime. And, uh, and they did all right with this model. Uh, 
is sold. We use traditional bank loans, reasonably priced. We got the first 12-year insurance company loan in the industry. Then I got a 16-year loan, which was interest only for 11 years. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, so we kept borrowing. We highly leveraged and just kept rebetting the farm. Uh, you know, one of the great you know, ways to create shareholder value, if you have enough financial discipline and you're lucky, is to have a perhaps higher than normal gearing ratio, leverage ratio, uh, in, 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 in compared to your equity base. So we did that. We were leveraged six, seven, eight times to cash flow. Uh, put that in perspective, to be an investment grade credit today, you gotta be somewhere below three, three and a half times uh, cash flow to, to, to debt leverage. Uh, during my administration, I was never below six times. I was high as eight and nine times in, in the mid 80s. But we, we never had a single cash crisis in, in, in the 50 year history of Comcast. Never, it was never an issue of, of meeting maturities or meeting the payroll. Uh, and we were lucky, it was good. So uh, it evolved and uh, the rocket booster that made it really all happen was the junk bond era of the 1980s. Uh, it was, it, we couldn't believe anything we want to accomplish, we could accomplish through the issuance of high yield debt. And uh, you know, a lot of people used uh, Mike Milken and, and Drexel Burnham. In our case, we just happened to have used uh, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and, and DLJ as, uh, as uh, our sources. And we did dozens and dozens uh, of, of those financings. The other thing, let, let me also get to the bottom line of what happened we went public 40 years ago. We went public in 1972. For those 40 years, we have had an internal rate of return to our shareholders of around 18%. During that same period of time, the S&P 500 has returned about 8%. That's extraordinary. When you think over a 40-year period, there are only a couple of, I bet there are less than a dozen companies United States that have that record. Among them would be like uh, Southwest Airlines, Microsoft, maybe Intel, uh, maybe Walmart, very few. Uh, so it's extraordinary. No cable guy has it either, uh, not even close. Uh, and one of the things that made it possible was that from day one, we had a Class B super voting stock. Not unusual in the media industry. Uh, unusual in business in general. And because of that, we were able to make the very tough long-term decisions. We didn't have to worry about the quarter-to-quarter -quarter vagaries of some uh, adventuresome shareholder activists showing up and causing uh, trouble. Uh, we looked, what does it take to make long-term, like the Steve Burke decision to make a, oh, our stock, plunged when we started those capital expenditures. But we knew it was the right thing to do for the long haul. So we made a lot of long, made acquisitions that uh, some people thought were aggressive, uh, but we thought were right. And, uh, and you know, the beauty of it all is that we've had this from the beginning. So no one's ever purchased a share of Comcast stock where they didn't know the Roberts family controlled the situation. If you want to play that game, buy the shares. If you don't want to play that game, don't buy the shares. I remember many, many investor conference, uh, people that would come from the audience, raise their hands and say, uh, you know, uh, when Brian Roberts became CEO, he says, there's a Brian discount in the stock uh, because, you know, it can't, the company can't be sold and you should do away with that. I said, why in the world would I ever want to do that? And why should, do you have a right to ask for that? You bought the shares with the Brian discount. Why do you think you should be able to sell it without? So, you know, it's a bit of a circular argument. And in fact, the truth is, uh, and uh, as a banker, I've looked at this over the years, which is, is there a discount when there are dual class shares? And the short answer is sometimes and sometimes not. 
And in the case of Comcast, because they were demonstrably the best operators, were focused exclusively on cable, were willing to bet the company, but every time executed, there was actually a Roberts premium. The fact that there was a dual class shares, if it's run by people who are running it for the benefit of all the shareholders and have proven themselves as great execution, you'll get, they can trade at a premium. Obviously, if it's run by, you know, the fifth generation of family and they control it, it might be at a discount. Um, so it's not the question of that it's dual class that drives it. It's a question of who's controlling. Now, let's move it to, to more of the current world. There was a moment in history where I noticed, and I'm sure you did too, that the Roberts premium disappeared and in fact did become a discount. And that moment was when you launched a, a hostile bid for Disney and lost, and then never repudiated the strategic impetus behind it, which is that content belongs with cable uh, and distribution. During the period of time that all you did was consolidate cable, buy it, execute, and move on, you got a premium because it was clear you knew how to do that, you knew those businesses, and you were the best at it. When you started to suggest implicitly by trying to buy content that you thought you would be good at that and that that would be strategic as well, uh, people started to get nervous and the premium went away. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, uh, part of that premium went away because people felt like you were going to go spend a bunch of money on something that they didn't have a track record of you doing well. And ultimately, you did. <laughs> and you did it uh, uh, by buying uh, NBC Universal. And you did it at precisely the same time that every other cable company in town that did own content was busy getting rid of their content. Time Warner spins off Time Warner Cable, and the CEO makes it absolutely clear they're not going to go back into content. The Dolans spin off AMC Networks, run it completely separately, and you go exactly in the other way. So what do you know and that Viacom, they don't know? Like and Viacom. CBS. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you know that they don't know? A lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of our strategic advisors over the years was Felix Roden uh, in the 80s. And he just kept saying, you guys should have more content. And, uh, and if you were on Mars looking at Comcast, you could have probably said in the way the world was then, uh, TCI had Liberty, had a lot of content, the New Houses had content, uh, Cox had content, uh, certainly Time Warner and, uh, and Cablevision. And we were very, well, we, you know, we we believed in cable, we believed in distribution, we understood that business, and uh, you know, we, we didn't view ourselves as Hollywood types and that sort of thing. So you're right, every nickel we had, uh, the famous story in that regard was when Ted Turner overpaid for the MGM Film Library. Overpaid terribly. And he was about to go into the vault, default to Kirk Corian, and he was going to repossess, and we viewed that, not we, uh, we were a very small cable operator. We were maybe fifth or sixth size cable operator in those days. But uh, John Malone and Jerry Levin at TCI and Time Warner uh, decided this was a great threat to the industry. And the industry had to rescue Ted to make sure that that film library and that content stayed in cable-friendly hands. So they called a meeting of all the cable guys to organize the rescue effort. It was a billion something we had to raise, a billion two to, uh, to, to pay, pay for uh, what was due uh, to MGM for that library. And uh, TCI and, and, and Time Warner put up the, the largest shares. They wanted us to put up, I don't know, $75 million. And uh, we said no for two reasons. One, we didn't have $75 million. <laughs> and two, if we did, no question we'd put it in the ground or up in the air and buy more cable systems. There was never, never a doubt in our mind. And we, we, put it, we ended up putting $5 million. And, uh, you know, 
You buy the fellows who put up $75 million, made like a billion and a half on, 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 on that investment. And that was our, our mentality. There's no question. Our saddest moment was the Disney experience. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but we are not dumb people. And we thought we had been invited in to bid on Disney. It was not a hostel. And uh, we were the most surprised guys in town when it was rejected our offer, and it turned out to be a hostel, and there was no graceful way to get out of it. And as you accurately portrayed, we spent four or five years in the penalty box because of that experience. Uh, people thought that not only were we going to spend a lot of money for content, we didn't know how to go about doing it. So that was, and that's when that discount really, and it hurt. It was painful and it was shameful from our viewpoint to have had uh, that experience. Now with NBC, uh, we started, when we talked in house about you know, what should be done strategically, NBC always came as the top thing. If you couldn't get ESPN, uh, you know, Forget the Walt Disney and Mickey. What you, what you get with the Walt Disney Company is ESPN, which is worth more than the whole rest of the Walt Disney Company put together. Uh, so uh, you know, it was always NBC. So you know, Brian started the campaign working on Jeff Immelt for maybe three or four years. And things have to happen. You've got to get lucky in this stuff. And so what happens in 2007, 2008? You know, the advertising market goes into the toilet. The financial crisis hits. GE is faced with the burden of how they how they are going to handle GE capital in this thing. It was it could easily have pulled down the entire General Electric company. And here are these itty bitty cable guys from Philadelphia who've been making nice for three years, uh, who happen to have fifteen billion dollars in their back pocket of cash. To, to give to the mighty GE company to, uh, and GE didn't want to be in that business. I mean, they, for years, did not view NBC Universal, you probably know more about this than I do as a banker, but I'm sure they did not view it as a core asset, and we're looking for a way to get out. So here's a situation between the financial crisis, the advertising market, and these guys with 15 billion bucks uh, was a beautiful way to get out. Uh, We bought it right. It, it, I can't get into all the details of the structure, but there are so many tax advantages. We bought 51% to start with. The way the back end buyout of the 49% is struck, we have a carried interest in it, so it's a built-in discount. Uh, eventually, when we buy the, uh, the, the rest of, uh, of NBC Universal, uh, understand also why we did it. 70 to 80% of the value of the cash flow of NBC Universal are in those unglamorous cable channels that you know nothing about called USA, where you know about CNBC and MSNBC, Sci-Fi Network, and, and things like that. that. That's where all the value is. All the glare and all the publicity is in the NBC Network uh, and Universal Studios. The theme parks are fabulous business growing, making lots of money. So we got a good buy in what we got for, for our money. Plus the upside, NBC networks and stations are so far down that with the slightest improvement, there are billions of dollars of value to be created. So forgetting the main reason we did it, which was strategic, we are now perfectly hedged with regard to content versus distribution, if retransmission fees go up, those are the fees you pay to carry broadcast channels, we are 25% of the cable industry, we are 25% of the broadcast industry. It's an absolute, perfect strategic hedge that really didn't cost us very much. Wrapping up this installment is Ted Turner. Turner inherited his father's troubled advertising business in 1963. 
He began buying radio stations and then sold them to purchase an Atlanta UHF TV station, which he renamed WTCG. By 1976, he used satellite technology to beam WTCG to cable systems nationwide, creating the first superstation, reaching millions of cable subscribers and reaping millions more in advertising revenue. He renamed the station WTBS two years later and launched a CNN in 1980 to much skepticism. But Turner proved his critics wrong and went on to build a global brand and a stable of iconic networks that changed the face of television. So that, uh, you had that little station in Atlanta those days and one in Charlotte, I think, at that right. time. And uh, what got you interested in the cable television business there? Well, I was in the only, I didn't have any money or had very little money at the time. And I wanted to get in the television business. And all I could afford was UHF stations. And everybody here knows UHF was pretty hard to receive without cable. And there wasn't, uh, the, the metropolitan areas like Atlanta didn't have any cable, but there was cable out on the, on the fringes of the metropolitan area. And there was, there was cable that just started in places like Macon and Columbus that were, uh, Columbus, Georgia, were about 100 miles away, Huntsville, Alabama. And they were bringing in the Atlanta stations to get a full complement of uh, network stations. And uh, I started, I figured, well, a viewer in Columbus, Georgia would be worth as much as one in Atlanta pretty much at some point in time if I could get enough of them. So, and besides, even in Atlanta, I wanted cable there as quickly as possible so people could receive us because it's very hard to receive uh, UHF with a dependable uh, signal. So at the very beginning, I figured that cable was going to be good for me as a UHF television operator, so I decided to throw my lot with cable cable early because it was in, uh, and, and I would provide good programming so that the cable operators in the surrounding area and later with the satellite all over the United States and, the, and then the world that we would, uh, that we would uh, be mutually beneficial to one another and uh, that we'd all get rich together. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. That is kind of what happened. And have a lot of fun too, you know, I mean, it's pretty hard to get rich without having fun unless you're robbing a bank. We didn't do that. We, we earned our money the, the good old-fashioned way. We, we worked for it. Uh, good. It, uh, when the satellite came along, what made you jump to that? Well, the satellite uh, was... I saw the satellite as just... In those days, we had to do microwave, and you had to have a microwave tower over 35 miles because that's the only way to get there, and each one cost you know, 50000 or $100,000, depending on the terrain and what, what, but it was a very, it was an inefficient way. It was okay to go from point to point to point, but it was no good or not efficient for point multipoint. And when I read about the satellite, the communication satellite, I said, wait a minute, this is an antenna 32 or 22,000 miles up in, up in space that can cover the whole North American continent and we can go point, multi-point to every cable operator in the country. And, and, and if we put compelling enough programming on that satellite and give the industry uh, something that people will be willing to pay for, then we can get cable operators to start in the major metropolitan areas and we can wire the whole country and have a national medium and we'll eventually we'll get to 80% penetration. Then we compete with CBS, NBC and ABC and make billions. And you thought and, about uh, all that back then. That sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what we did. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that satellite you picked. Do you remember the guy that came in to sell it to you? No, nobody came in to sell it to us. Oh, you called... I called, RTA we had to call, or... nobody, you know, we, we had to call just about everybody. Very few people came, came to see us in those days. And even the people that we went to see, it was... Was a guy from uh, was Western Union? What was his name? He was Ed Taylor, Ed Taylor from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. Ed, if you're still alive out there, hello. Anyway, I I called him and I said I want to come up and find out about about the satellite. I said I want to use the satellite to cover the country with my television s station down here. And he said, Well, come on up. And they, I think I landed at Newark Airport, and they sent somebody up to pick me up and take me down to Western Union's headquarters and they we spent an afternoon going over uh, you know showing me around and how how things worked I already knew basically how it worked but I wanted to establish contact and get them to start negotiating to uh, rent a transponder so we could get on the on the satellite 
But you didn't go on to Western Union's birth. No, because Ed was in the process of leaving Western Union to go with uh, with RCA, SATCOM, I think, or whatever it was. There and 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 HBO was already on. The, well, actually, that's not true. West at the time I went to see Ed Taylor. HBO was on Western Union because the Western Union satellite was the only one that was up and working. RCA was in the process of getting ready to launch their uh, their first communication satellite, and HBO had already made arrangements to switch over to that satellite. And it became very clear that we wanted to be on the same satellite with HBO. There were only going to be two services up there to, to start with. But but it would be much more cost efficient for the cable operators if we were on the same satellite because one satellite dish would receive uh, both signals without adding a second dish. In those days, satellite dishes, uh, Bob Rosencrantz bought the first one down in Florida, I think everybody remembers, and it cost close to 100,000 bucks, which was a, a lot of uh, money mm -hmm. in those days for most of us. Now it's not? Or? No. No. <laughs> So you got up on RCA, and you had WTBS up there, but you weren't really allowed to go sell it, were you? No, we were not allowed to, to rent the transponder ourselves either. It turned out when we checked with the Washington attorneys. And, and remember, this was all new stuff. So when we'd go to Washington and ask the FCC about things, they didn't have any, uh, any, any rules about buying satellite, renting satellite transponders. It was too, too new. So... We had to kind of invent everything as we as we went along. But, so but whatever we every problem that there was, I'd go to bed at night and think about what the problem was, and almost invariably before dawn, I'd have a solution to the problem, <laughs> at least a, a theoretical one, and we'd go out that next day and try and solve that problem, and then before the day was over, a new problem would arise. <laughs> uh, and not everybody here that was building cable systems and getting franchises in those days, they. They know what I'm talking about. We had to write the rules as we went along because we were doing something that nobody had done before. We were like Christopher Columbus when he, when he left Spain to seek the new world. He didn't know where he was going when he left. He didn't know where he was when he got there. And he didn't know where he'd been when he got back. And we call him the father of our country. That started those southern satellite systems came That's out. That's right. It was one of the and I gave I gave right? him I gave him the right to put us on uh, the satellite, and I, and I and I said, look, if you charge ten cents a month and you get a million subscribers, you've got a hundred thousand dollars a month, and the transponder costs a hundred thousand, so you break even with a million subscribers, and from there on. Every dime you get a month, you know, a dime a month doesn't sound like much, but if you get up enough people, you know, you can get rich. <laughs> Every month, you know, year after year. <laughs> and besides, you start at 10 cents and then go to 20 and 30. You know. <laughs> that's the way cable started, you know, $8 a month. Then we got it up to 40 bucks a month. You know, that's where the money is, you know, when you get get more later down the line when you're providing a more valuable service. So TBS then grew across that five years from 75 to 1980, and you got a, a hair to go start a news network, but you weren't known for news back in those days. Well, I couldn't afford news, you know, and it basically uh, there wasn't any point of me promoting news before I decided to go with CNN because all I, it wouldn't have been in my best interest to do so. And besides, I thought the news was pretty negative anyway and pretty biased, so uh, I, you know, I didn't watch it very much. Not television news. I watched it a little bit, but I didn't want Walter Cronkite telling me how to think. I mean, I like Walter Cronkite. He's a personal <laughs> friend. But, uh, but in those days, he used to give his opinions all the time on the news, and I, kinda didn't, I didn't like it. So you started Cable News Network. Mm -hmm. And why did you call it Cable News Network? Well, I figured there was a lot of skepticism by people, some of whom are still in this room. <laughs> See, the great thing about the cable industry is most of us were here at the beginning. And we're going to be here at the end, too, because <laughs> the end is the end game is just about here. Within the next year, there will only be two cable operators and one satellite operator, basically. And... Uh, the game's over because, uh, like in Monopoly, when you own all the real estate on the board, you know, there's nobody else left to pay rent, you win. So, uh, 
All you have to do, it's so sad. I was over on the floor over at the convention center today, and it looked like uh, Kosovo or Afghanistan. There's so many holes, you know, where there used to be, used to be, uh, you know, uh, people that were displaying their wares. And it, there's very little left over there. I mean, it, it, the industry is going to be part of a, of a big telecommunications industry, but it's not going to be, well, it's not the cable industry anymore. I mean, AT&T is the biggest cable operator, and they're going under. I mean, or they're going to disappear within the next year. Uh, I mean, that's pretty, things are happening awfully, uh, awfully uh, fast. But it was a really interesting uh, 30 or 40 years, it really was. It was just 21 years ago that you started Cable News Network. That's right, but, but, but cable had already started right. you know, about 40 years ago. True. And, and the Superstation went up 27 years ago. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, it, I've been in it for 30 years. And 30 years is a long time. I mean, but it's short. Uh, it was, you know, we wired the whole country and basically got the vast majority, 80% of people subscribed to multi-channel television. That includes... Uh, uh, the, the two satellite providers. Mm-hmm. But back to Cable News Network, uh, you named it Cable News. No, oh, that's right. Yeah. The reason for that is that there was speculation of whether we would succeed and whether we had enough money to say it through. And I figured if we put cable in the first name and we were going to promote the living daylights out of it, not with a big advertising campaign, but me going around uh, talking to newspaper editors and everything, that that, you know, call your cable operator and, and it would have been very confusing for the cable, uh, the person answering the phone at the cable company to say, no, we don't carry the cable news network. Well, why not? It sounds like it's owned by the cable industry. Why aren't you carrying the cable? You're a cable system. You know, I thought we'd be confusing enough to where it would help us get more carriage, and it did. And it did. <laughs> but that... In 1980, though, you, you've had a history of kind of betting the ranch, so to speak, in the company. In 19, 19- but only when I thought it was a really the good odds bet, a were good heavily bet. in our favor. <laughs> well, but 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 it's pretty hard when you're doing something that's never been done before to know for certainty whether it's going to work or not. We did take, we took a lot of risk, but so did uh, most of the people in this room. I mean, when you go into a new industry that doesn't exist before, and you go out and try and. Uh, uh, do the things that uh, that all of us in this room did. You know, it's uh, we all took risks. Not everything worked either. I remember a music channel. Well, but that that really did work. The music channel did work. First of all, John Malone and several of the bigger cable operators. MTV was trying to get a a hundred percent rate increase for that garbage <laughs> programming that they had on. <laughs> those free videos that they didn't pay anything for, and the cable operators dug in their heels, and they needed somebody to uh, to leverage uh, MTV. So they said, Ted, do us a favor and start a music channel and announce that you're not going to charge any fees, and that way we can negotiate a better deal with MTV. So I did that. And, uh, uh, and we got on the air in 30 days with it. It's so easy to do. And, 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 and so... The cable operators all cut the deals they wanted. MTV reduced their prices back down to very de minimis uh, rate increase, and uh, and we signed we signed off a month later <laughs> when we realized that uh, we'd served our purpose. But it only cost I think it cost us less than two million dollars. I mean, it wasn't even a lot of money then, but we had built up a lot of goodwill on the part of people like Malone and the other big old cable operators that felt like they were being screwed by MTV. <laughs> And uh, so they carried our services, and uh, you know there was a, there was always quid pro quos for what we did. I mean, you know, it, it never hurts to be popular with your customers. Never, ever. <laughs> so you started uh, other networks and around. Them. Yes. Yes. You started some other networks, and TNT came along with. Uh, uh, you were line extending what you were doing and using right. sports. Right. Network. Right. Yeah. I figured, you know, the more networks, the merrier. You know, and by at this time, cable operators were figuring the, the more systems, the merrier. It was, we were already on our way towards uh, getting big and consolidating. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the first though, to combine the sports franchise with making it a major by piece far of the programming. First. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we bought we bought the Braves ten years before the Tribune Company bought the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they, you know, but after you know, the broadcasters were only eight or ten years behind us. You know, it's. Uh, 
And Thank still- God they were so slow to react. It really <laughs> it gave us an opportunity because at the beginning, everybody thinks Bill Gates is so smart, and I think he's smart too. But basically, he didn't have, he had some competition, but the field was wide open. The computer software field was pretty wide open when he started. But when we started, the three broadcast networks were thousands of times bigger than we were. They they already, that space, the television broadcasting business was filled with three gigantic, uh, gigantic competitors that were already well entrenched and had been in business for over 30 years. Uh, so it was very, very difficult. But but they were so stupid and slow-footed to, to move that they, they, they allowed us to uh, get very nicely established before they uh, before they reacted. The whole idea is to in business, I think, is to is to figure out how to start something new if you can, and if not that, come up with something a lot better mousetrap and then market the hell out of it and, 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 and establish your market position before your competitors uh, react. And then hopefully you've got competitors that are large and slow like dinosaurs, like the networks were at the time. But the networks have, have rallied. I mean, most of the cable programming now is now owned by the networks. I mean, it was only a matter of, uh, matter of time. And, and basically when we get around the questions about why I sold it Time Warner, I'll explain what the strategy was then. It's a a, the, the game was a constantly changing one. It was like playing three-dimensional chess, and it's hard enough to play two-dimensional chess, and three-dimensional chess is extremely, uh, extremely difficult. Well, you had made a run at a network before. Oh, I, 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 a couple of times. At one time or another, <laughs> this is a story that has not been completely yeah. told. I had, I could have purchased CBS. I mean, I had it, it was right there. I had a handshake already with uh, NBC at one time, and I had ABC purchase too, or merge, I had a merger. I was a handshake away. I mean, the deals were made. I mean, but they all, uh, they all eluded me by just, you know, they were right there, you know. I, <laughs> I just, you know, I could have been a contender. You know, remember, uh, <laughs> Remember what Marlon Brando said in On the Waterfront. <laughs> but I got, you know, I can't worry about the things I didn't do. I, you know, I still made billions and started more networks than anybody else. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be marveling that my career was a failure because I didn't get one of the big networks. You know, I, yeah. you know, it didn't work out exactly like I wanted, but, you know, I still did okay. <laughs> you know, I ain't going to apologize to nobody, you know. <laughs> That's right. So why did you sell the Time Warner? Boy, we sure passed a lot of history. It, <laughs> yes. There went 15 years. <laughs> well, there were a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, when we lost the retransmission consent battle, and I, and I suspected all along that the broadcasters were eventually going to win in Washington. They were going to win in Washington because with their local affiliates, they covered the congressmen uh, and senators at election time. And they really had a lot to say about who got elected and who didn't get elected at the state and uh, congressional level. And they they were going to use their leverage there to uh, to beat us in Washington. And they did. They eventually did it. For a long time, we held them at bay. And, and, and it was all of our effort. I, at one time, I knew half the senators on a first-name basis. Uh, I spent, like we all did, those of us who were there in that day, a lot of time in Washington. But it was really very, very critical for me that the networks not get control of the cable industry uh, early on before we were uh, established. And we were able to hold them at bay for years. But then eventually they won the retransmission consent battle. And they also won the battle to get the digital spectrum. And I knew they were going to eventually come up with, or they, there was a good chance that they would come up with six channels apiece. And either through their, their retransmission consent plus the leverage they have with the government, uh, the elected government officials, that they would, they would force their six channels onto the cable systems. It hasn't happened yet, but mark my words, it will happen. It will happen. They will get digital must-carry. And when they do, that's going to be, there's six of them now. You got WB, UPN, ABC, CBS, 
NBC and Fox. You've got seven of them, each with six channels. That's 42 channels. That's half the capacity. But we're headed into a world where uh, there are going to be virtually an infinite number of channels anyway. And this is all part of this because it's very complex. In a world of infinite channels or infinite choice at your fingertips with uh, video on demand, the value of channels goes down. And also with the internet, the internet is a, uh, a, another competitor. And, and uh, so I thought that there was a good chance that over time, and, and then on top of that, everybody wanted to have a cable network. You know, cable had uh, a dual revenue uh, stream. And I was the one that invented the dual revenue stream. CNN was the first network that came out and honestly told the operators, you're gonna have to pay us 15 cents a month for this network. At that time, if you'll recall, ESPN was advertising that they were gonna pay you to carry ESPN, you know, ha, 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 suckers. I mean, you didn't have to look through that one very far to see, yeah, you're gonna pay us $2 a month, that's what, they're, that's what they meant, but uh, per sub. Anyway, that was uh, one thing. I thought that, I thought that we, we had a good chance of, well, I already knew with retransmission consent, that's why one of the reasons I desperately wanted a network, because I knew we were going to be, we were going to eventually not be able to compete without a network, uh, not co to compete at the top level. I did not want to be a fringe player in the broadcasting business. I wanted to be the dominant number one player, and uh, we were there. We, we, we were, when we merged with Time Warner, AL, Time Warner was at the time, the overall value of our company was about $12 billion. And uh, uh, at that time, the networks were worth 6 or $7 billion apiece. So we, we had basically doubled the value of what CBS, NBC, or ABC were worth during that 20-year uh, period from 1976 to 1986 when I merged uh, with AOL, AOL, Time Warner, and one reason I, I merged with them is, AOL, it wasn't AOL, Time Warner stock, the value, of, you know, you can figure out what the real value of assets were, and the combined value of Time Warner stock was about half the value of, uh, of what I thought those assets were, the, the various cable companies, what HBO was worth, what the magazines were worth. I figured that they were selling, selling for half what they were worth, and if I could get what I thought was the real value for TBS, which was about $12 billion. And Jerry was willing to give that to me because he was in so much trouble at the time. I figured all we had to do was merge with him. We would be getting double the value that, that the AOL share, that the Time Warner shareholders had. And then all we had to do was go out and convince Wall Street that the Time Warner assets were undervalued and they were going to be managed in a more intelligent way than they had been in the past. And, and, and then the stock would come up to what it deserved to be at, which would, we would double our stock during the first year. And then from then on, we could show how uh, that there'd be a lot of synergies and things would really work. And then we could double it again. And that'd be four times our money. So I just had to, had to, had to do that. And it's exactly how it, how it worked out. We did. We quadrupled our money in about two years, which is not bad, and, uh, but, but there was another reason too. Uh, I was really, I was really brokenhearted when Jerry uh, vetoed, you had the power of the veto, and he was on our board, and he vetoed the NBC acquisition. If we had gotten NBC eight or nine years ago, when we had it for $5 billion, had a handshake deal with Bob Wright, and it was 100% financed, it was, uh, it was really a terrific deal. They were going to take a billion dollars worth of common stock. They said, we'll take a, we'll give you some kind of, uh, give us some kind of preferred stock that pays a little dividend that we can cash in on. And if you can't borrow the, the other three billion from uh, a bank or a consortium of banks, we'll finance it through GE Credit. So it was a turnkey deal. And John Malone voted for it. Uh, but but Jerry, Jerry vetoed it. And that, I knew then that we were not going to, we couldn't win, that our hands had been tied behind us. The biggest mistake I ever made really was, was and Malone told me not to do it, but I, 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 I was, was bringing Time Warner into the consortium of cable operators uh, for that 
500 and something million that we needed to pay off the uh, pay down the uh, the debt that we occurred when we when we acquired MGM. I shouldn't have done that. All right. Well, I shouldn't have let them have the veto. But I was tired, too. That was the other thing. I was I was tired after 30 years of working 18 hours a day, five or six days a week uh, with one crisis after another for 20 years. I was uh, I was tired. And when you're tired, you don't make the best decisions. And I said, basically, I knew we were selling out. Uh, I didn't know what the consequences would be. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would actually lose my job. I just <laughs> I couldn't believe that. But it but it happened. Uh, it happened. So my advice to any younger people in the room is be real careful who you sell to uh, if you sell your company. Uh, be be prepared uh, to leave it. If you sell it, be prepared to leave it. I, I just, you know, I figured at the time I owned 9% of AOL, of Time Warner. And I figured, well, Jerry thought that he bought me, but I thought I bought them. You know, I mean, that's, uh, but, but, but 9% is not 51. That's, uh, <laughs> let me, let remind you that. That's, my math wasn't too good. I, I did pretty well in high school math, but, uh, I'd forgotten. And I, I guess I just, got a little overconfident, but I was tired too. And, uh, and you should never make important decisions when you're tired. Get a good night's sleep first. Pretty basic. Pretty basic. You've just heard Titans of Cable. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>